Today's reading comes from 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm not going to scare you with my loud voice anymore, so we're all good. Uh, There are a lot of new faces here, and so if you're thinking that you came to the week we're talking about money, yep, you did. And uh, sorry about that. Uh, But this is uh, just a a brief series that we're talking about money for. We talked about it last week and this week as well. Uh, This is just a a quick conversation to help us get our minds right about giving and generosity. So before we dive in, let me just give a, a brief recap of what we talked about last week. So last week, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler uh, who approached Jesus seeking eternal life. He came to Jesus, talking to Jesus, saying, you are a good teacher. Teach me about eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the rich young ruler, he was a man who had lived a moral life. He had lived a good life, but he comes to Jesus with some baggage. He comes to Jesus with some things. And as he approaches Jesus, Jesus says, You've done all of this. Good. One thing you lack, go sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And to this, the man says, okay, cool, let's do that. No, the the man goes away very sad. He goes away distressed because he had great possessions. The man had come to Jesus seeking eternal life, and Jesus tells him, surrender all. Walk away from your love of money. Walk away from your love of riches and come follow me. And the man couldn't do it. He missed out on eternal life because his God was money. His God was riches. His God was in his possessions. He loved money and he served that instead of serving God. This man is a man who missed out on eternal life, the very thing that he was seeking because he couldn't turn away from his idol. So underscoring all that we're talking about last week and this week is the reminder that the love of money is an idol that stands opposed to the way of Jesus and stands opposed to eternal life. And so if you weren't here last week, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon so that you can have the the best possible framework when thinking about money. You know, money is one of those things that's very difficult for us to see according to the way of Jesus. It's something that's very difficult for us to allow the Lord to speak into. And I think that has a lot to do with the culture that we're immersed in. 
The culture that we're immersed in has this cultural narrative that disciples us to believe that everything is about money. From a very young age, this is instilled into us. We're, we're taught the American dream from a young age that we can be whoever we want and that we can earn as much as we want. It's the cultural narrative that we have been discipled into. But I want to submit to us that money is a terrible God. It's a terrible thing to to set our lives after. It's a terrible way to look at life around us. And we must kill the love of money at all costs in order to faithfully follow Jesus. Like I said last week, it's awkward to talk about money. I don't like it any more than you like it. So I would prefer that we just skip over this part and go to something else. But I felt the Lord um, taking us here. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about money. And because of that, it should be something that we talk about within the church. And so this morning, my sermon's a little bit different than maybe the sermon that you're used to hearing from me, uh, because what I'm hoping to do this morning is to kind of lay out a biblical theology of giving. And because of that, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to jump around to some different passages, but we're going to live in 1 Timothy 6. And I'm going to say this at the very beginning. So this is my disclaimer at the front of the sermon. Don't throw anything at me today. Don't run me out of here. I'm going to be talking about some things that are going to likely be different than what you've heard before regarding money and giving and generosity. And so we're going to talk about this from a biblical perspective. And what I want to encourage you to do is don't just take me at my word this morning. Don't just take me at what I say, but go back to Scripture on your own, study through Scripture, and weigh my words, weigh what I'm teaching you this morning based off of that, because I'm going to be giving you some things that are likely different than what you've grown up hearing regarding giving and what has been typically taught in the church on that. So don't throw anything at me when you disagree. Don't give me the evil stare when you disagree, but weigh all that I have to say this morning according to the full counsel of the Word of God. Word of God. You guys okay with that? Okay, if you're not okay, we're going to do it anyway, so, so you might as well get on board. So let's go ahead and dive in. I want to read uh, 1 Timothy 6 through 10 again and, and just talk about this for a moment. Paul is uh, summing up all of his instructions to Timothy, and he says this, "...but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that." Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So nice, encouraging, simple thing that we're talking about this morning. Paul is summing this up. He's writing his final thoughts for Timothy, and he's setting up this idea that some people have actually wandered away from the faith because their God wasn't the God Jesus Christ, but their God was money. They had a love of money, and they were working towards that. And this is something that concerns Paul very greatly. It concerns him, and he's warning Timothy. He's warning his spiritual son, who's serving as a pastor, warning Timothy so that Timothy can vigilantly equip his church regarding this manner. Paul is teaching this to Timothy so that Timothy can go on and teach it to his church. And Paul frames what he's saying here kind of with this single idea in verse 6, and it's this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
And this is something that kind of flips our world standard of thinking on its head, because the world teaches us that to value more, more, more. That's what our world teaches us to value more, 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 bigger, stronger, better, faster. It's what we hear all the time with the bombardment of advertisements that we get. That's the, the system of the world. But Paul writes to Timothy and frames this whole thing by saying someone who is in Christ should value contentment. And that's flipping the system on its head for us. This is what it actually means to gain. Not in having more in our bank accounts, not in having a huge 401k, not in in having the best house on the block, not in having our, our dream car. To actually gain is to be content in what Christ has done to be content in the things of Christ. And this is difficult for us to do. I'm going to admit that. It's going to be difficult for us to submit all of this to the Lord. But we have to think about when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we we declare that he is our God and we declare that he is our Lord, which should mean that we submit everything to him, including our finances and our money. But in actuality, This doesn't always happen for us. We say that he is our Lord, but there are certain things within us where like, okay, Jesus, you're Lord of all of this, but please don't touch this, right? And money is one of those things that's difficult for us to let go. But through the work of sanctification, through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, we can learn to give up more and more and more. Not in a begrudging way where we're like, okay, Lord, just pry that out of me, but where we learn the way of God more and more, where we happily surrender all things. He begins to transform our thoughts and our desires to be his thoughts and his desires. They're no longer our corrupt thoughts, no longer our corrupt desires, but they're then aligned with the things of God. And our part to play in that is submission. Submitting all to God. But when it comes to money, that's really difficult for us to do. And I think oftentimes we just assume that it isn't an issue. We're just like, I'm good on money. Lord, you don't have to work on me in this this area. I'm good. We just make the assumption there. And I want this morning to, to hopefully open us up to maybe examining that a bit more as we dive into God's word. I think we can often allow the cares of the world to guide our finances more than the God of all creation. We can allow the things of the world, the cares of the world, to guide our thoughts about our finances rather rather than God himself, rather than allowing God to, to show us how we are to relate to him in the area of finances. We just adopt the mindset of the world. This is something that we need to get rid of. I think this is the heart of what Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy 6. He's trying to to give Timothy a new framework that he can teach to others, that he can show them that that money isn't this overarching thing by which everything else we, we, we judge value by, but instead is something that we are to submit to God just like everything else in our lives. I think if we dive into what Paul is saying in these first four verses, we'll, under, we'll uh, find that stuff is meaningless at the end of the day. We don't take any of it with us when we die. We don't take any of it with us. We came into the world with nothing, and we leave the world with nothing. 
And so with that type of mindset, contentment should be where we live. Knowing that we came in the world with nothing, we leave the world with nothing. In the middle, it shouldn't be about accumulating more and more and more. It should be learning how to be content, to find our enjoyment in God, to find our status and our identity, not in our things, not in what we have, but in who God is and what he has done for us. While a nicer house While a better car, while fancier clothing, while a boat or a motorcycle, or you fill in the blank, whatever it is, may be enjoyable to us in the moment. It's all fleeting. True joy is found in Christ. True joy is found in God. It's not in the accumulation of stuff. Let me kind of help us see some of this a bit more by going to the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21 real quick. This is Jesus teaching, and he's saying this. He says, starting in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus doesn't really mean that, right? Isn't that how we we typically act? Isn't that how we typically act? Jesus doesn't really mean that. We can just gloss over it real quick. But Jesus here is specifically telling us not to focus on bigger, better, faster, stronger, but our culture tells us the opposite. And it's hard for us to break that mold. It's hard for us to let all of that go because it's been something that we've been immersed in from birth. And so what I think we typically do, what we often do as Christians, is we try to baptize the way of the world in Christian lingo so that we can keep doing it. So that we can never ultimately submit this to Jesus and we, at the same time, downplay his words. Like, Jesus didn't really mean that. Jesus really isn't that serious. Jesus, that's too radical, Jesus. We try and downplay what Jesus has taught us. We're quick to turn away from some of the world's teaching right? We're good at some of it. We're good at running the opposite direction. But when it comes to money, we not only embrace it, oftentimes we celebrate it. Think about it. We, we hold the rich on a pedestal. We, we hope that the American dream will come true for us. And if it doesn't come true for us, at least it can come true for our children, right? It's something that we make our lives after. But look again at what Paul says in verses 9 and 10 in 1 Timothy 6. I, I want to read this again because I, I think it's important for us to get this. Those who want to get rich, isn't that following, trying to follow after the American dream? Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is a very strong warning. Paul is using very strong language as he's writing to Timothy here. And I think because of that, it's something we need to pay attention to. 
We shouldn't just quickly dismiss it because it doesn't work in our philosophy or our value system. We need to throw out our value system, our philosophy, and instead look to the Word of God first. I know this is a radical teaching, but this is what the Word of God says. I know that prosperity is attractive, but Paul is warning us here that it's corruptive as well. That it's something that leads us into all types of temptation. That for the love of money, we can be pierced with many griefs. This is something that we need to take seriously. Remember last week as we're talking about the rich young ruler, what does Jesus say? It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And he says it again. He repeats the teaching because his disciples are so awestruck with that. He, he repeats it to them. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I think this is one of those areas that it's so difficult for us. In our lives as Christians, we flee from all kinds of temptation, right? Or at least we should. We know that we should, and oftentimes we do. We, we learn to flee from temptation. We learn to, to not do certain things or not to put ourselves in certain situations lest we sin against God. But for some reason, when it comes to money, we think we're immune. Like, we're not going to be tempted. Not me. I can't be tempted. And that's exactly where the enemy wants us. When thinking that, that we won't be tempted or that we won't fall in that area. When we are cocky, when we are arrogant, when we are prideful about money, that's exactly where the enemy wants us because that's the start of our fall. I think we need to take a step back and ask ourselves why on earth we would pursue riches when Scripture gives such a warning as verse 9. I'm going to read it again for us one more time. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Friends, I, I know this is not an easy teaching. I know it's a difficult teaching. I, I know it's one that, that would be easy to write off as radical. But I think it's one that we need. As we're thinking about money, as we're thinking about finances, as we're thinking about these things that are written in the world of God, we can say, Lord, this is radical. But wasn't the cross radical? Wasn't what Jesus did for us on the cross radical? Wasn't God sending his perfect spotless son into frail humanity radical? Wasn't God the son taking on flesh? Because we couldn't get it right radical? Wasn't him living a perfect, sinless, spotless life radical? Wasn't him being whipped and beaten and mocked and scorned radical? Wasn't him, as he's being put on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, radical? Wasn't him being resurrected on the third day, radical? Wasn't him sending out the disciples into all the world radical? Yes, this teaching is radical, but guess what? So is all of the Bible. So is all of the teaching of Christianity. 
We have always been people who live for ourselves. That's the whole point of the gospel, that we continue to live for ourselves. But God has come into our story. He has stepped into our story because we couldn't get it right. Because we kept going like a dog back to its vomit after sin. And he stepped in to our story, made a way where there wasn't no way. And by his grace, we're saved. It's radical. The whole thing is radical. We need to allow him to transform us wholly. To transform all of us. Not just the things that we want him to transform, but every part of who we are, including how we interact and relate to money. We must become people who find our contentment in him. Not in the relentless pursuit of wealth. Not in the pursuit of comfort. Not in the pursuit of some standard that we can never attain. We must find our contentment in God. And so let's talk about how we do that. Let's, let's go, jump ahead to 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. And we're not skipping some verses because it's uh, inconvenient to talk about them. It's just because Paul is giving final instructions in chapter 6, and he's kind of jumping around a little bit. And so he's talking about money, talking about some other things, talking about money again. And so we're going to talk in 17 through 19 again. Paul writes to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is how we do it, friends. Remember how, what we talked about last week regarding who the rich are? And we remember who's, who are the rich? Who are the 1% in our world? We are. $34,000 a year, and you're in the 1% of the world. Those who are rich in the present world, by and large, all of us who are sitting here in this room. This is for us. Paul is writing this for us. We are the rich in this present world. And so I think it's important for us to dissect the two commands that are here for us, because they're commands that Paul is writing to Timothy. He's saying, command them to do these things. And so let's talk about those. The first command is to not be arrogant or put hope in wealth and to instead trust in God. And this is the whole thing that we talked about last week. This was the rich young ruler's problem. He couldn't trust in God because he trusted in himself. He trusted in his wealth. He trusted in his possessions. He couldn't let go of all of that and trust in God because money was his idol. Money was his God. Money is what he trusted in. Often, I think we can be quick, just like we're quick to dismiss this teaching on money, we can be quick to say that we don't really hope in our money. But I think we often judge this based off human standards and not godly standards. 
Remember what Jesus says that we just read a moment ago. Jesus tells us where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And so I want to ask you the rhetorical question this morning, where is your treasure? Where does your disposable income go to? Does it go to bigger, better, faster, stronger? Does it go towards comfort? Does it go towards security? Or does it go towards the kingdom of God? I think as we reflect on that, the vast majority of us, myself included, would say that we haven't surrendered our lives fully to the Lord in this area. That we haven't allowed him to fully have our heart in the area of finances and giving. We prove that we need a radical shift. We prove that we need the Lord to do something in our lives. We got to learn how to be content, to not pursue and chase after riches, not to search after security and wealth and status and all of those things that are fleeting, that we can't take with us. We must learn to find our contentment in God. To trust in him, not in our possessions, not in our wealth, not in our things, not in ourselves. Because we know that we can't get it right on our own on anything else. Why is it in money that we can get it right? we got to learn to trust in God. That's the first command. The second command here is that the rich, he commands the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share. So let's talk about that. For a moment. We're going to talk about each of those four things. And so if we're a new creation in Christ, if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, if we have received the grace of God in our lives, if we have been made new by the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then we are to be people who do good and who are rich in good deeds. So let's talk about what it looks like to do good. Doing good is related to our relationship with God. It's abiding in Christ. It's walking according to the ways of Jesus. It's putting into practice those things that, that God has commanded us to do, to live rightly according to his word. It's to do that. It's to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to surrender more and more to the way of God and allow that to well up inside of us. A transformed life is an outflow of following Jesus, and it has this compounding nature to it. You know, when we talk about money, we often talk about compounding interest, where this continues to earn and earn and earn. Well, the fruit of the Spirit and abiding in Christ is the same way. It compounds over time more and more and more. As we surrender to God, it becomes easier to surrender to God. And more and more fruit wells up and grows in our life. It builds more over time. That's what it looks like to do good. But there's also a charge separately here to be rich in good deeds. And I want to read uh, Ephesians 2.10 real quick. This is what Paul says here. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works or deeds, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have good works laid ahead of you, not to earn your salvation, but to be the outflow of your salvation. 
that you work in light of your salvation, not for your salvation. And so good deeds are related to our relationship with others. It's about doing good to others, and it's ultimately an outflow of what God has done for us. Good deeds look like caring for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. It looks like going into all the world and making disciples. As we do good and do good deeds, these rewire our priorities. They make us become kingdom people, people who look like Jesus. They help us become kingdom-minded, who look to glorify God in all the ways of our lives. Not just certain things, but in all things. And I think those two things— Doing good and being rich in good deeds, doing good to God and doing good to others, they actually set a sort of foundation that help us to think rightly about things like money, things like giving, and even our vocations. And so let's talk about those last two charges that are here in this command. To be generous and ready to share. And so I'm going to ask you the question, I just want you to think about it in your mind. You don't have to, to blurt it out, but just think about it in your mind. What does it look like to be generous? What does Paul have in mind here? What does it look like to be generous? Does it mean tithing? Does it mean something else? Is there a certain standard of generosity in Scripture for us? Is there something that we can judge this by? And this is the part of the sermon where I'm expecting you guys to throw something at me. This is the part of the sermon where I'm going to challenge some things and challenge some of our thinking. And again, I'm going to give the disclaimer here. Please weigh everything I'm about to say to you based on the Word of God. I alluded to this last week, but nowhere in the New Testament is the standard of giving 10% or tithing. It's absent from the New Testament. Tithing is a part of the law and was never a requirement for Christians. Okay, no fruit has been thrown in my direction yet, so I'm going to keep going. The New Testament touches on generous giving, but it never prescribes an amount as a requirement. It never says that we are to continue on in giving a tithe back to the Lord. Now, some would argue that tithing preceded the law with Abraham, right? Because Abraham tithes before the law is ever given. And therefore, since Abraham tithed, it should be something that we continue in as Christians, right? Well, circumcision also preceded the law. And I don't see any of us lining up for that. In fact, Paul has a lot to say. The New Testament has a lot to say about circumcision being of no value. And yet, we throw out one and claim the other. And so what I want to do for just a moment, and this is where the the biblical theology portion of the sermon comes in, I want to spend some time in a few different passages to help us frame this, to help us get a biblical understanding of this. And so we're going to go to Malachi 3 for just a moment. Because this is the passage that we love to grab a hold to when we talk about tithing. So I'm going to read Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12 for us. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. 
Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will, be no room, no, there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the, divine, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty." All right, no fruit in my direction yet. No one has any in their hands, so we're still good. This is an Old Testament prophet. Malachi is an Old Testament prophet specifically addressing the descendants of Jacob, specifically talking to the nation of Israel. The language is so in there all throughout it. You descendants of Jacob, your nation will be blessed. It's throughout this passage more and more and more all throughout it. This is not a promise for Christians. You don't belong to the Old Covenant. You don't. You don't belong to the Old Covenant. We don't possess a land as our inheritance, which is what this passage is about. It's about the land. We possess Christ. We are blessed because of Christ, not because of our adherence to the law. And that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about adherence to the law. This is the prophet Malachi talking to the people of Israel, saying, you haven't kept the law in this matter. You haven't kept the law in tithes and offerings. Therefore, you are under a curse. We are not under the law, friends. We're not under the old covenant. And to say that we can be blessed by keeping the old covenant is to say that the cross doesn't matter and it actually puts us under a curse again. To say that we can earn God's favor and his grace and his mercy by keeping the old covenant flies in the face of what Jesus did on the cross. It flies in the face of what he has done for us. So let's keep going. Let's talk Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14, real quick. You foolish Galatians. Always great when someone uh, addresses you that way to start out something they're trying to tell you. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you so that those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. By grace, through faith, we're saved. And what Jesus Christ has done The Galatians here, they were falling for the lie that they needed to follow the law, especially circumcision as what Paul is specifically talking about here. They had fallen for the lie that they had to submit themselves to the law after trusting in Christ for salvation. But Paul strongly, strongly speaks against this and calls it foolish. You foolish Galatians is what he says to them. And I know this is difficult for us. I know I'm trying to reframe something that's likely been embedded and ingrained in you for a long time, but I have to be faithful to Scripture. I have to be faithful to what Scripture says. Tithing is part of the Old Covenant. It's part of the law. And if we insist that tithing is required for believers, then we have to uphold the whole law. We don't get to pick and choose here and there. If we insist that tithing is for believers, then we have to insist that we follow the whole entire law. If we believe that that following God in this will bring benefits like those listed in Malachi 3, we're actually putting ourselves under a curse. We're putting ourselves under a curse once again. But what did Paul just tell us? Christ became a curse for us. To set us free from the curse of the law. He came to set us free from us not being able to keep up the standards of the law. Malachi 3 doesn't apply to you. The requirements of the law don't require to. You're not Israel. The old covenant is not your standard. It has been superseded by the new covenant. And as we read through Scripture, we can't just read through and thumb through and put our finger down and say, okay, I like that verse. It makes sense to me. I'm claiming it as my own. We must read Scripture through the lens of what Jesus did on the cross. That's where all of Scripture points to, the the, the redemption that Jesus offers through the cross. And we must read all of Scripture through that. We must read it in its proper context and pay, par- and pay careful attention to the covenants that are there. Let me read Romans 8 real quick for us. Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ has done it. He became the sacrifice. He became the fulfillment of the law. You can't earn God's grace by keeping the law. You can't do it, friends. Even in this area of giving and tithing, you can't do it. Christ has done what the law couldn't. Stop trying to put yourself under the old covenant. Stop trying to do it. The new covenant is superior. Christ has paid your debt. He has made you whole. He has eliminated the curse from you. He has made you new. He stepped in to your place. And so I know that's a lot. I know that that may be new for you. But I want to talk about now how we proceed from there. If that is the understanding that tithing isn't a requirement for Christians, I'll then ask the question again, what does it mean for us to be generous? What does generosity look like for Christians in accordance with 1 Timothy 6 verse 18? What does it look like for us? Because while tithing isn't commanded, Those who are rich in the present world, you and I, are commanded to be generous. We're not commanded in this under this strict sense of of the law and being subject to that, but we are commanded to be generous. And so what does that look like for us? Well, here are some, some guiding principles for us regarding generosity. I think first and foremost, generosity has to be framed according to what Jesus has done for us. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Rich because of your inheritance in Christ, not because of your possessions. And this particular verse is pulled out of a context of Paul writing to the Corinthian church who had pledged to make a donation. They had pledged to make a donation, but they weren't following through with it. And so Paul gives them this as an example. He shows them what Jesus has done for them. And in this context, Paul specifically says to them that he isn't going to command them to give in this specific offering, but reminds them of what Christ has done for them so that they might know that it's worth it. It's worth being generous. Jesus has done all of this for them, so why wouldn't they give? For Paul, the sacrifice of Jesus frames how we should think about our finances. Not giving God this small amount, but giving God our all because Jesus has given his all. None of us are rich compared to God, and yet God put all of that aside. Becoming poor, becoming a lowly human in order that we might have true riches, in order that we might have eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
When we think about Jesus, when we think about what he has done, it should awaken our hearts to be generous. It should awaken our hearts towards generosity. So let's talk about a few other things and we'll quickly go through these and be done. Here's the advice that Paul had previously given the Corinthians regarding giving in 1 Corinthians 16 2. I'm going to read this from the NASB 20. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections need to be made when I come. There was a regular collection that was being made to to support the churches and, and the poor. And Paul is going from church to church to collect that. And he gives them the advice, when you meet together every week, put aside some money. And he tells them to do it as one may prosper. And here's another thing. We typically think about prosperity that we give in order to become prosperous. That's been a perversive thinking inside of the church. But Paul flips that on its head here and he says, as you prosper, give generously. As the Lord prospers you, as you prosper throughout your course of life, give generously. Putting this together with Paul's reminder to be content in 1 Timothy 6, we begin to see that prosperity isn't to be used for us. It isn't to be used so that we can eat, drink, and be merry. So that we can get more, 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 bigger, better, faster, stronger. But prosperity is to be used for the kingdom of God. It's to be used for the proclamation of the gospel. It's to be used so that others might know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Instead of constantly upgrading our lives, instead of frivolously saving away everything for ourselves, a proper response in light of what Jesus has done is to give as much as possible as the Lord prospers us. We must trust that God is able to meet our needs. Not ourselves, not our work, not our abilities, but God is able to meet our needs. Not our wants and our desires and our hopes, but our needs. We must put our hope in God, not in money. And so let me briefly run down a few things real quick. Some guidelines that I think are helpful for us when thinking and considering giving and generosity. This is where I'm going to kind of pull the rug out from under us. Consider giving 10% as a good baseline. But wait, Pastor, you just talked about tithing not being required and all of that. Yeah, I did. The standard in the New Testament is above and beyond that, is radical generosity. And so consider that as the baseline. Consider that as some, a good place to start. But if you're not able to do that, there's no curse. You're not under an obligation. You're not less holy than those who give 10% or more. It's a good place to start. Give as the Lord prospers you. If you can't give 10%, give whatever percentage you are able to give. Give what you're able to give. But I want to give a word of caution on that, a pastoral word of caution. Make sure that you're basing your standard of giving not based off of your luxuries, but based off your necessities. Because often we can look at our bank account and we can be like, okay, well, I can only afford to do this because I've already spent all of this. 
Make sure that we're considering our standard of giving based off of our necessities, not our luxuries. And as a good rule of thumb, seek to increase in giving. Seek to increase over time. We always seek to increase our standard of living. Seek to increase your standard of giving as well. Number two, prioritize the work of the local church. The local church as an institution is charged with making disciples. It's charged with going out and evangelizing the lost, with making them or helping them become mature Christians. The local church is the heartbeat of God's redemptive purposes in our worlds, in our world. Even as we send out missionaries in all the world, the goal is always to establish local churches to be able to carry out the work of the gospel. As I mentioned on our Vision Sunday last month, this church is not a cruise ship. This church doesn't exist to to have all of our needs met and for us to just uh, be able to sit there in the cabana with our nice drinks and someone always waiting on us hand and foot. This church is not a cruise ship. This church is a rescue ship. And it requires each and every one of us to participate in giving of our, our time and our resources, our finances, so that we can see the vision that the Lord has given us, which is to see our community and world develop a transformational relationship with Jesus. Not just be a vision, not just be something that we say, but for it to actually become a reality. Let me say this about giving to the local church. Oftentimes, giving to the local church isn't, um, isn't this thing in our head where it's super, I'm just going to use it. It's not sexy. It's the only word that was coming into my head, so that's what you guys get. Like giving to missions is sexy, but giving to the local church isn't sexy, right? Because the local church, we got bills and we got salaries and we got programs and all that. But all of those exist for our vision to become a reality. All of those exist so that we can see the lost found, the found equipped, and the equipped sent. Everything that we do hinges on that. It's the reason that we make every financial choice that we make so that the lost can be found, the found can be equipped, and the equipped can be sent out into all the world, including our community. Remember, the vast majority of people in the North Country do not have a transformational relationship with Jesus. The vast majority of the people here do not know Jesus And giving generously to the local church is one part of the equation in seeing that change. As more comes into the local church, we can do more to reach those around us. We can do more things to be able to see the lost found, the found equipped, and the equipped sent out. Number three, give cheerfully and open-handedly. Paul also instructs the Corinthian church not to give reluctantly, but to give cheerfully. We get to give. And this is part of why it's good news about tithing. We're not obligated to give this certain percentage. We get to give in response to what Jesus has done for us. When you give, don't be there where you're just holding on to it and like someone has to pry it out of your hand. Give generously. Give cheerfully. We're responding to what God has done for us, and that's cause for great joy. It's cause to remember what Jesus done, has done. We should also trust God with what is given. 
Give it open-handedly, trusting that those who are tasked with managing the funds will make spirit-led decisions that are in alignment with the vision the Lord has provided for the church. Give cheerfully, give open-handedly. Number four, remember the poor. While abject poverty may not be as present in our context as it was in the early church or in other parts of the world, we should still look to meet the needs of others. Still look to meet the needs of others that we see who are in need, especially those belonging to the body of Christ is what Scripture commands us. Number five, be involved in global missions. Remember that we are called to make disciples of all nations, of all nations. And while we ourselves may not go into all the world, we can be present with those who are by giving of our finances, while we still do the work here in our context. Above all, this is the the bottom line for us, and I know I've been long this morning. Above all, prayerfully consider what you are to give in light of what God has done for you. Not out of obligation. Prayerfully consider based off the cross of Christ. He gave all for your salvation. We couldn't measure up. We couldn't get there. We couldn't earn it ourselves. And God made a way where there was no way. He stepped in for us, became sin for us on the cross so that we can be the righteousness of God. He gave all. Consider that when you consider how much you are to give. He's worth your full surrender, amen? And that's going to look different for each of us. going to be something that we have to pray through, something that we have to think through. Count it all joy, friends. Count it all joy in all circumstances, in all things, in all trials, in all circumstances in all circumstances. Count it all joy. Because no matter what happens to us, we are secure in Christ. Whether our finances wash away tomorrow, we're secure in Christ. Put your hope in God, not in money. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you. We thank you that you looked down upon us. That you saw that we couldn't measure up. That we continued to fail time and time and time again. You didn't cast us aside. You made a way. You sent your son to die for us, to become a curse for us, to free us from the curse of the law. The curse of sin and the curse of death. You made a way. And I pray that you would help us to fully surrender to you. Help us to respond to you. Help us to lay ourselves down by your Holy Spirit. We know that we can't do that on our own. We know that we need your Spirit to move in us. That help us to see your goodness. 
Help us to see your grace. Help us to see your mercy. And help us to respond to you, O Lord. With our lives, with what we do, and even such a thing as our money. Help us to lay it all down. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.